Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Welcome back, one and all, for a little bit of the Two Tongues Podcast. This is a solo episode coming at you today. Uh, Another episode of Opinion Scholarship. Uh, What are we going to get into, Chris? little book over here. A little book over here called The Joyous Cosmology by a guy named Alan Watts. Hold on, let me put my things away. All right, so... Uh, Alan Watts is somebody who um, popped up on my radar not long ago. I mentioned before Kyle was telling me, hey, you've got to check this guy out. He's right up your alley. All the things you like and talk about, this guy talks about. <laughs> he does a great job. Um, and then a number of other people recommended it, including at uh, ThouArtThat on Twitter. One of my, uh, one of my uh, professional philosopher friends there on Twitter. And um, so I decided, you know, I would buy it. I bought a few Alan Watts books. so We, we may get into some more of it. But um, but I bought that one because it was supposed to be the most mystical of all of his writings. Um, so really what I wanted to do, I mean, this is a trip account. This is an account of Alan Watts participating in some sort of psychedelic drug consumption, having an altered state of consciousness, mystical experience, and then describing it. And I think that's fascinating. It's fascinating if you've ever had one. Uh, an experience like that, to hear somebody else's version of it. Because there are things about the experience that are very, very different. So much so, and Kyle will say this a lot, it's almost like you can't compare a psychedelic experience from one person to another. They're so different. And they explain them differently. The things they see, the things that makes them think, um, the meaning, the interpretation, all of it. And we know, we know that set and setting plays a role in this. You know, we know that your frame of mind, that your memories, that your hang-ups, your psychology, basically, is going to play a role in how that experience plays out. So that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, there are consistent things that seem to flow through mystical experiences of all kinds. And this has been interesting to me because it's not just psychedelic experiences, um, there are religious experiences, mystical religious experiences that have nothing to do with psychoactive substances at all that that come back with very similar language, um, just very similar accounts. Out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, also um, very similar in, in, the, in these sort of a uh, few items that you see recurring, right? They're very different, but there's, there's these th- threads that go about them that are consistent. And 
that's in, that's interesting because when you have things that are consistently popping up, there must be a reason for that. It's definitely a pattern. You're recognizing a pattern. And when you see that pattern over and over again, you know that there's a reality to it. Right? It's, it's transpersonal. I'm experiencing it. You're experiencing it. Someone from the 1300s experienced it. You know what I mean? There must be something to that. And so just like I would find it very interesting to hear people talk about their dreams, um, trip accounts are very much like that. It's like getting into somebody's psychology, um, seeing the images that their unconscious brings out of them, um, the connections between things. It's fascinating. Um, and so Alan Watts is sort of a, an interesting example. I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about Alan Watts just before we jump into this. Uh, born in 1915, died in 1973, published a tremendous amount uh, of books. He's done a lot of lectures. They're very famous uh, and popular. You can go on YouTube right now and you can watch uh, Alan Watts lectures all day long if you want. Um, he was, uh, you know, he had he had advanced degrees in religion. He had a, a theology degree and he worked uh, for a time um, as a priest. Um, but then he really got into other religions, you know, and that reminds me a lot of myself. You know, I started off with some fascination with the idea of God from my own religious experience growing up, what I learned from my folks and all that. And then when I began to study other religions and making connections, comparing and contrasting, it just opened up the floodgates of fascination. It was like a thousandfold, you know, more intense for me, the allure, um, you know, pulling me into to wanting to understand that more. And I still do. Um, so Alan Watts has got a tremendous vocabulary. He's got a great way of speaking. If you watch his lectures, you'll see what I mean. And he can talk about things poetically and paint an image for you uh, and speak with a lot of beauty. And that really helps to sink in some of these very difficult to understand ideas. And I think it's worthwhile. It's well worthwhile to check out Alan Watts. Uh, but today here, I want to talk about this particular book, The Joyous Cosmology. It was published in 1962, so, you know, uh, less than 10 years before he died. And this is basically a compilation of a number of trips that he had. Um, we're we're going to start off with a little bit of an introduction, and then he's going to talk about, at the end, he's going to talk about some kind of religious implications. But the big chunk of this book is all about the trips. And he makes it out like this is one you know, beautiful, magical, like, day. But he, I think it's like 12 separate trips that he had, and he compiled them all together into the story. And if you want to do research, and you go and you look for trip accounts, you're going to find lots of modern trip accounts, but you're also going to find lots of ancient trip accounts and everything in between. So there's people like William James, who's a philosopher of religion, um, Sir Humphrey Davy, who we've talked about on the podcast, um, a psychiatrist, a Canadian psychiatrist named Maurice Buck, who wrote a book called Cosmic Consciousness that's filled with examples of this. Not to mention the great Aldous Huxley and his book, The Doors of Perception. Uh, Timothy Leary, who we did who we, talk, we did an episode about on the podcast. Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD. Um, all of these people have interesting trip accounts that you can go and read. And they're all very mystical. And that's why I like them. They remind me of my own mystical experience. Uh, they inform my own mystical experience. So, so let's hear from Alan Watts. Um, 
you know, he's basically the great psychonaut of our of our generation. Maybe maybe Terrence McKenna would be up on that list as well. But he and and Terrence McKenna was a prolific lecturer as well. Um, so uh, that's the kind of person we're dealing with. Not to belabor it, let's jump right in. The first section is going to be before we get to the actual trip accounts, and I'm going to call this section "Tripping: Why and How." All right. Alan Watts begins, The individual is so interwoven with the universe that he and it are one body. Is there a medicine which can give us temporarily the sensation of being fully one with nature? Then he answers his own question. There are at least three. Mescaline, the active ingredient in the peyote cactus. Lysergic acid, a modified ergot alkaloid. And, of course, psilocybin, a derivative of the mushroom um, psilocybe mexicana. And he says, despite the claims of certain religious disciplines to be the sole means of genuine mystical insight, I can find no essential difference between the experiences induced under favorable conditions by these chemicals and the states of cosmic consciousness recorded by investigators of mysticism. And then he says something really interesting. He says, mystical insight is no more in the chemical itself than biological knowledge is in the microscope. So you see what he's doing here. He's making an analogy between the microscope and the psychedelic drug. It's a tool for him. It's a way of looking in, well, into his psyche, really, just the way that you might look into your body with a microscope. And he wants to point out that the information, the visions, the meaning, the insights, those things that people talk about getting from psychedelic mystical experiences, those things aren't in the medicine. They're not in the substance. There's not knowledge in the substance. It's it's within you. So the medicine unlocks it. The medicine allows you to see it or experience it in some way. But it's not the medicine itself that has this information. Now, it may be the medicine that affects your physiology, but the medicine doesn't have the insights. It doesn't contain the insights. That's already in you somehow. And when he says that that psychedelically induced mystical experience is essentially identical to religiously um, developed mystical experience, you can think about people who meditate um, who have, a, who have a deep uh, practice in meditation, people who go through aesthetic rituals like um, sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, you know, starvation is a, really not, not, a, uh, not a bad way to this sort of experience, although maybe a little bit more dangerous than, than, uh, than others. And I want to point out when he says that these, these experiences are similar or very, very similar, maybe identical, he, he has a caveat there. He says, under favorable conditions. So what is he referring to is a bad trip, right? So if your set and setting isn't right, if your state of mind isn't right, um, you won't have a mystical experience. You might have a psychedelic experience, but you're not going to have a mystical experience. So there's more involved than just the medicine. I think that's very important because he's pointing out that the knowledge, the insights, uh, the revelations... They don't, they're not in the medicine. And he's going to talk a little bit about his approach. So he says, 
and using lysergic acid or psilocybin. I usually start with some theme. I may concentrate upon one of the senses and try to turn it back on itself so as to see the process of seeing, to know knowing, so approaching the problem of my own identity. I think that's fascinating. So his approach is to take the drug and then concentrate on himself, kind of sinking down deep into himself and trying to turn his own awareness, his own consciousness, back around to, to, to observe himself. And this is tied to something that we see from mystical religious traditions going back a very long ways. We've talked about this before, but there's an inscription above the temple of Apollo at Delphi that says, Know thyself. It's no surprise that, um, or no mystery anyway, that the Temple of Delphi and the rituals that happened there very likely involved some sort of psychoactive substance. So it's often told that the priestess goes into the cave, she breathes the vapors that are, that are coming up from the ground, and she, it puts her in this mystical state where she can speak for the gods, where she can see the future. So interesting that that temple would have this phrase carved above the entrance, know thyself. Because when you enter into mystical experience, that's what's going to happen. You're going to know yourself. And the self that you know, the self that you discover there, is not the self you, it's not at all the self you imagine. You are more than you imagine by a tremendous margin. It's one of my favorite uh, quotes from Jordan Peterson. So he wants to turn his concentration back on himself as a way of seeing the process of seeing and knowing the process of knowing, something like that. And it's about knowing what it is he is, what it is that, that it means to be conscious. What is consciousness? And psychedelic experience almost always has this emphasis, great emphasis on bringing your attention to exactly that, that you are conscious and what a mystery that is. Okay, so Alan Watts goes on. He says, The speed of thought and association is increased so astonishingly that it is hard for words to keep pace with the flood of ideas that come to mind. From these reflections there arise in intuitive insights of astonishing clarity. Some prove to be valid, others not. It is the same with sudden hunches that come to the artist or inventor. The drugs appear to give an enormous impetus to the creative intuition. Now, I have to say, my own mystical experience, the first one that I had, the one with the universe, change my life experience, I would have described the beginning of it exactly like this. The speed of thought and association is increased so astonishingly that it's hard for words to keep pace with the flood of ideas that come to mind. So imagine you're thinking but rather than thinking at your normal pace, you're thinking a million miles a minute. You're processing like you cannot imagine. And you've got all these associations that come to mind. If I'm thinking about consciousness as an example, trying to focus on that, trying to turn my awareness back on myself, all of these associations come to mind. What does consciousness mean? What is it connected to? What concepts? What ideas? Where does it come from? Uh, it, just, it just balloons out of control. And the bigger it gets, the more meaningful it gets, and it seems like an epiphany is building in you. 
And the climax of that experience is this mystical oneness that everybody talks about from these mystical psychedelic experiences. The culmination is the feeling of being one with the universe, of losing your sense of self, losing your identity in a manner of speaking, because I don't, I don't entirely love that description, but you lose your individuality and you are expanded to the nth degree. You become one with the universe. And I want to point out that one, one thing he says here, which is worth pointing out. He said, when this happens to you, the reflections arise intuitive insights of astonishing clarity. So these are these, you know, moments where you feel like you've cracked the mysteries, all of the mysteries of the universe have become, you know, obvious to you, that kind of a thing. And he says, some prove to be valid, others not. So this is something I think is worth pointing out. Alan Watts is a smart man, a very experienced psychonaut, um, you know, and a very, you know, developed philosopher. And he says, not all of these insights that come to you in psychedelic experience can be applied. Some of them turn out to be fanciful. Some of them turn out to be wrong. There's always this element of interpretation involved. It's not clear whether everything you experience and all the interpretations that you have are valid, or if you're not capable of, like, um, synthesizing them, you know, and you're going to make mistakes. You're only human after all. So some of these insights, when you test them afterwards, you find that you can't break them. They're, they're rock solid and they change your entire perspective on things. And others, you try and, you, and they just fail. They don't work. And that's important because some people think that psychedelic mystical experience, especially the way it feels, it feels like something that is realer than real, truer than true. It's so overwhelming um, that some people think that it's completely valid, that it's completely unimpeachable, basically. And Alan Watts is basically telling us that's not always the case. You can't accept every intuition that you have. You can't roll with everything that you might take from an experience like this. It's really important that you test them out, that you think about them for a long time, you try, you try to synthesize them into your, you know, your, your knowledge base in some way. That's, that's, that's helpful for you in your life. And then he says, My object is to give some impression of the world of consciousness which these substances reveal. I do not believe that this world is either a hallucination or an unimpeachable revelation of truth. It is probably the way things appear when certain inhibitory processes of the brain are suspended. So I think this is pretty pretty important as well. It's 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 a really honest take. And Alan Alan is saying, I can't tell you that these psychedelic visions are hallucination. Because partly they are and partly they're not. But what I, what I also can't tell you is that they're an unimpeachable revelation of truth. They're not one or the other. They're some sort of combination of both. And I think that's also kind of interesting because when we get into this, we're going to find that there's, a, there's an emphasis on opposites and unifying opposites. And uh, thinking about a psychedelic experience as a hallucination that's meaningless, let's say or an, un, an unimpeachable truth, an unimpeachable revelation. And those things are sort of opposites, you know? And just like anything in these psychedelic experiences, 
The truth is some sort of a combination, some sort of a unity of opposites. So hallucination, unimpeachable revelation, yes and no to both. And that brings me to the next section, which is Alan Watts' trip accounts. Annotated, of course, I'm bringing to you just a few, a few pieces to talk about. But I'm going to call this section, Follow the White Rabbit. All right, Alan says, remember, he's, he's tripping here. He says, I begin to feel that the world is at, is at once inside my head and outside of it. And the two begin to include one another. I am unusually aware that everything I'm sensing is also my body. I am knowing the world by a continuous process of transforming it into myself. Whew, all right. A lot there, right? So kind of an interesting idea. So he begins to feel that the world is at once inside his head and outside. It's both. And you can understand that because we generally think that the world exists external to us. And that, and that signals from that world gets translated into our brain to become our perception. Something like that. So it is inside our head and outside our head. Then he says that the two begin to include one another. So what you're supposed to see is that a boundary being broken down between the outside and the inside, between myself and what's other, right? That boundary starts to fall down, and these worlds, these worlds come together. And it's, it's as though the worlds are always together. The world inside your head and the world outside are always one thing. But this process of breaking that boundary down reveals it to you. Now, it seems to him like these two worlds are coming together. The truth is, he's just being revealed that they were always one. So, what is known out there in the world, and the knower himself, or herself, are one continuous thing. And there's something... Whiteheadian about that. We talked a lot about Alfred North Whitehead and his process philosophy before. We did lots of episodes on that. And, uh, and Alan Watts definitely has some sympathies. He definitely overlaps uh, Whitehead in a lot of ways. Uh, a continuous process. Even that sounds much like Whitehead. What about this bit here that he, he feels the world at once inside his head and outside of it? There's something that comes to mind that I just want to put in here. And you, it comes from the Bible. You'll see it in the Gospels. But the one that I want to talk about is the Gospel of Thomas. So this is a Gnostic Gospel. It's not, you're not going to find it in your Bible. It may very well be the oldest Gospel, by the way. And it says something that's similar to what you'll find in your Bible, in the Gospels. It says, The kingdom of God is within and without. So Alan says, I begin to feel the world at once inside my head and outside. And Thomas says, the kingdom of God is within and without. So you've got this parallel here from this sort of ancient Gnostic tradition and Alan Watts' psychedelic experience. Also with Whitehead, a lot of overlap. He says, does the order of the brain create the order of the world or the order of the world, the brain? The two seem like egg and hen or like back and front. Brain and world interpenetrate inseparably. They define one another and would be impossible without each other. 
So brain and world to him would be impossible without one another. They're like those opposites, right? You can't have one without the other. Now this thing in the beginning where he says, does the order of the brain create the order of the world or the other way around? And I think that's an interesting question and there's something that uh, I learned studying Jordan Peterson that uh, comes to mind. It's actually a, a reference to another psychologist, Jean Piaget. And he said, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but he said when he was studying the psychological development of children, when he's studying how that happens as people, as people mature, he said that their sense of themselves, who they are as individuals, and their sense of the world, um, they come into being together and they develop together. And the way he put that is he said, he said, knowledge is not in the eye. Now I'm going to butcher this. Knowledge is not in the eye. He said there is a mutual and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. And this is something like what Alan is saying here when he says, does the order of the brain create the order of the world or vice versa? Well, it's both are true. Simultaneously and mutually, both are true. And you can't have one without the other. And then he says something interesting. This is something that you can only, you can only imagine somebody in the throes of a psychedelic experience saying, or maybe somebody mentally ill, or maybe somebody deeply depressed. Uh, but this is what he says. I don't fully know what I am. He says, consciousness peers out from a center which it cannot see, and that is the root of the matter. Does the amoeba split itself in two in an attempt to solve this problem? Hmm. So he's, he's trying to, remember, turn his own awareness back on itself and try to, try to experience what it is he is because he wants to know. He wants to know thyself, right? He wants to know what he is. And he says, I can't, I can't fully know what I am. I can't, I'm having trouble really grasping it. And the mystery, he, he, he says it beautifully. He says, consciousness peers out from a center which it cannot see. Like if what I'm trying to understand is consciousness and I'm turning back my awareness onto myself trying to, trying to see it, trying to experience it, I try as I might, I can't see the place where consciousness comes from. I can't examine it. I can't find it. And he says that is the root of the matter. Right? I am a conscious being and cannot find where consciousness comes from. And that is true today with, with material science, by the way. Consciousness remains, in 2023, a mystery to science. And then he throws in some of his, some of his sort of um, poetic uh, imagery. He says, does the amoeba split itself in two in an attempt to solve this problem? So you guys know what an amoeba is. Microorganism, it's like a big ball of goo, uh, for lack of a better word. And it, and it moves by sort of splitting its body and, and, and pulling it apart in different directions. And that's also how it eats, right? So if it finds something that it wants to eat, it'll just sort of pull itself around that, that creature. And then once it's all the way wrapped around, it ain't going nowhere. It's going to get absorbed into the amoeba. So the image you have is a creature who splits itself into two in order to see just what the hell it is to know itself. And this is what he's trying to do in this psychedelic experience. 
Then he says, in what form do I know myself? Always it seems in the form of something other. And then he says, the shock of realizing that oneself is something external. And this is hard to understand, but it's interesting. He wants to know, in what form do I know myself? It always seems in the form of something other. So the, the idea would be, if I were to take my awareness, like he said, and flip it around and, and examine what it is I am, I'm looking at myself as the same way as I would be looking at a stranger, as something other than myself. How do I examine myself as though I'm a third party? How do I abstract myself away enough so I can see myself as I am and understand that? So the way in which we do that, however it is we accomplish that, is to examine ourselves and to know ourselves as though we aren't ourselves. And, that, and that's what he says, the shock of realizing that oneself is something external. It's the consciousness, you know, in a manner of speaking, floating up above you, looking down at you. It's this third, third party in the mix. And it makes you yourself, the most intimate thing in the world to you, a seem to be something outside of yourself. And it reminds me of something Hegel said, the philosopher Hegel in his, in his great work. Um, he said, consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness. Something like that's going on here. And then he says, the internal and the external imply each other. Right? So he said he's looking at himself as though, ex as though he's external. But then he says, look, the internal and external imply each other. Well, what does that mean? It means you can't have one without the other. Internal implies external. There is no internal without an external. There is no external without an internal. He says, the more I become aware of their implying each other, the more I feel them to be one with each other. In the features of everything foreign, incomprehensible, and remote, I begin to recognize myself. Yet this is a myself which I seem to be remembering from a long, long ago. All right, then I'm going to fast forward to a different part of this where he says, well, you know what? Let me just pause here for a second. I don't want to move too quickly. So he says he begins to see everything that he imagined to be, you know, completely opposite to him, foreign and incomprehensible and remote. He began to see all of those things as though they were himself. But then he makes this weird statement. He says, yet this is a myself which I seem to be remembering from long, long ago. So he's making a distinction between his ego, right, the person he thinks he is, the person that he associates with his face and his name and his memories and his personality, his ego or his persona or whatever. That is not the myself he's referring to here. Right? Remember, there's an internal and there's an external. There's kind of two selves going on. And he's talking about, he's talking about another self, maybe this external self. All right, then I'm going to fast forward to a different scene here. He says, we're sitting around a table eating dark homemade bread and drinking white wine. The people with me are no longer the mortals we're all pretending to be. They appear rather as immortal archetypes. They are at once men and women, but also gods and goddesses. 
They are as familiar as if I had known them for centuries. I think this is beautiful. I'll tell you a story. I was listening to a lecture. I think I was, I was on a long road trip. I was listening to, I think it was a Jordan Peterson lecture. I'm almost certain. And he was talking about Mary and Jesus and the myth. And uh, it was really powerful, really emotional for me, actually. Because he said, he said that Mary, who, who you know, had this child that she loved, and if you have a child, especially an infant, you, I don't have to tell you any of this. You know what it, me- you know what it means. It's something that she loves more than her own self, something that, that she's putting all of her energy into, all of her hope for the future, this, this bundle of potential that she loves more than she can possibly imagine. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's something like this that I'm trying to describe for you. And Jordan says that every mother, right, not just Mary, but every mother has to offer up their child to be broken by the world. And we know that story with Jesus. We know what happened, right? Jesus was offered up by Mary, you know, and broken by the world. Um, Jesus was uh, crucified, beaten, um, ridiculed, pulled in, in front of the community and pulled in front of the, the magistrates and and called names and his family and loved ones and apostles were forced to watch him suffer and, and all of that. He was broken by the world. But every mother and every child has that same situation. Every mother has no choice but to let her children grow up. And when they grow up, they're going to find themselves in situations where they're going to be broken by the world. And there's no difference between the story of Jesus and Mary and the story of me and my own mother, let's say. And I called her on the phone and I told her that story. I was sobbing. Because it hit me so powerfully that this thing that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago and Mary happened to me when I was born and with my mother. And it's happened with every mother and child that's ever lived. And so there's something like an archetype. There's something like a pattern that we're living out and everybody follows the same pattern over and over and over. Another example of this. I was listening to... I can't think of the name of the song it was on the uh, it was on the soundtrack to uh, that fucking vampire movie Stephanie Myers uh, you guys know it I, I can't think of it right now um, but it, it was in that it was in that movie and I think it was called I think it was called A Thousand Years uh, but the, the, and I'm gonna fuck this up and I apologize um, just pulling this example off the top of my head but there's some lyrics in the song that talk about uh, you know I um I have loved you for a thousand years. I'll love you for a thousand more. And nobody lives a thousand years, you know? No, that's, a, that's just poetic language. But one of the things that made me understand, and it was also very emotional for me at, at the time, was that the love that exists between, the romantic love that, it, that exists between lovers, let's say, uh, it's powerful. It's a super powerful experience. And those who have known it know what I mean. But there's something about it that isn't distinct. And what I mean is, if you think about it like a spirit, like the spirit of love between two people, that spirit between me and my wife is the same spirit between my mother and father, between my grandmother and my grandfather, and every human being that's ever lived for the beginning of time. The spirit of love is something like an archetype that has been around for a thousand years and will be around for a thousand more. And it is the same experience. 
identical. So this understanding this archetypal idea is super important because Alan Watts is sitting around with these people. All of them, by the way, are, are high on psychedelics. They're tri- tripping on psychedelics. High is not the right word. Um, and they're eating together and they're talking. And he says this whole experience, which is this mundane, ordinary, sitting around a table with friends, eating experience, it happens every single day, became this magical situation where the people around the table, he said, they weren't the mortals anymore that they're pretending to be all the time. He said they appeared to him as immortal archetypes. They were at once men and women, but also gods and goddesses. Right? They, these human beings represent the same spirits, the same forces, the same patterns that exist in humanity forever and existed before humanity and will exist after humanity. That's what makes them archetypal. And so the people sitting around Alan Watts seemed like that, Gods and goddesses, immortal patterns of being, embodied, amazing. And then he says something great. He says, This is bound up with the recognition of my own most ancient identity. As if consciousness had been present at the very beginning of things. All of us look at each other knowingly for the realization that we are and have always been one. We acknowledge the master illusion whereby we appear to be different. It is the device of something turning back upon itself so as to seem to be other. And then he says, all dualities exfoliate from a common center. Okay, so this is amazing. And this is really the heart of it as far as I'm concerned. He said, he said that he sees these people around him like gods and goddesses, like eternal archetypes, and that they're as familiar to him as, as if he's known them forever, for centuries. And he says this is all bound up with his recognition of his own identity. He said, of my own most ancient identity. Right now, Alan Watts is not ancient, but he is an archetype, just like all of his friends around him. And they have been around since ancient times. They have been around since the beginning. And he recognizes that the thing he is, this conscious consciousness, was there from the very beginning. And he says as much, as if consciousness had been present at the very beginning. And it makes me think of that phrase from, from Genesis 1 and 2 when, when the Bible says that the Spirit of God was on the surface of the water. So God creates the universe. And instantly God is within the universe. He's, his Spirit of God is floating above the surface of the, of the primordial waters. That's, that's the consciousness Alan Watts is saying was present at the very beginning. That's the thing he is and all of his friends are around, that are around him. And he says, we acknowledge the master illusion whereby we appear to be different. And this is the device of turning back upon itself as to seem to be other. What does he mean by this? He's saying that he and, and all of these other eternal archetypes, these gods and goddesses around him, they're all one and have always been one because they, they go back to the original source that was there at the beginning. And he says all dualities exfoliate from a common center. They all come from the oneness. 
And this thing about turning back on yourself as to seem to be other, this is a really poetic statement, but it's really powerful because what it means is you can't have experience if you are all that exists. Right? So if God is one, there is really no mechanism to have an experience of what God is. You have to do what the amoeba did in that earlier example. You have to split in two and turn her back around on yourself. And then what you're doing is you're looking at yourself and you're seeing something other than you. It, see, it seems like something other than you. And see, that, that opposition... The tension between self and other, between all opposites, that's key. It's key to mystical experience. It's key to religious uh, experience. And this is what he's trying to point out, that you must have otherness, even if it has to be falsified, even if it has to be, you know, created for that purpose, for the purpose of self-experience. And then he says, more and more it seems that the ordering of nature is an art, and oneself is connected with it. The entire pattern swirls in its complexity, transforming itself endlessly into itself. So that's some more poetry from Alan, which I love. Transforming itself endlessly into itself. And I, I want to point out that there's two things here, really. When he says that it seems more and more that the ordering of nature, the patterns in nature that he sees all around him, is something like an art, and that he himself is connected to it. So he's, he's participating in this, in this artistic endeavor that is reality, basically. He's a part of it, and that's, that's important. And then he says that it's, it's a, an entire pattern that swirls and transforms endlessly into itself. And I want you to understand that when you have visionary experiences, they're very often geometrical, they're colorful, they're fractal, shapes transforming into shapes being broken down into smaller and larger scales all the time. It's something like that. It's disorienting and beautiful and, 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 all, and all that. But it represents this idea, this fractal idea, which is exactly what Alan said when he, we talked about turning back on himself. See, because if you look at fractals mathematically, and all fractals, all that means, if you don't know, is sort of like a pattern within a pattern within a pattern that goes on forever. It's something that can be described mathematically, uh, and it's something that, um, uh, you know, like for instance, it's, it's used to make hyper-realistic uh, you know, video games and virtual reality. Like fractal mathematics is, is key to that. Um, and there's a famous um, mathematician um, named uh, Benoit Mandelbrot who has this um, fractal uh, design. It's called the Mandelbrot set. You can look it up if you want. It's amazing. And in learning about that, I find out that how you get fractal mathematics, how you, how you get this fractal effect is to have, is to have the same variable on both sides of the equation, feeding back on themselves. So you get this process of feedback. And anybody who's ever put the microphone too close to a speaker or looked at yourself in a mirror with another mirror behind you, you know what that looks like. It's turning around back on yourself. That's exactly what the process of feedback is. And there's something about that, it turns out, that is key to the patterns in nature. 
and, and, and mathematics for that matter. And this, surprisingly enough, is a key feature of psychedelic experience, not necessarily mystical experience. It doesn't have to be mystical to have to be fractal, but it is certainly a part of the psychedelic experience. This deep, deep truth of nature. And it involves exactly what Alan Watts talked about. Feedback, turning back on yourself. Self-experience, that's how I would put it. And I'm just, I'll just come right out and say it. I believe, deep down, that reality is nothing more than God's self-experience. And if that's the case, seeing fractals in nature at the core of it makes perfect sense. That brings me to the next section. We're still in the tripic account here, but I want to break this up. I'm going to call this section Identity. And Alan says, The more dreadfully ordinary anything seems to be, the more I am moved to marvel at the ingenuity with which divinity hides in order to seek itself. I can see people just pretending not to see that they are avatars of Brahma, that the cells of their bodies aren't millions of gods. Fuck, man, the hair stands up on my arms. This is, this is, a, this is a perfect example of Alan Watts. He says, The more dreadfully ordinary things seem to be, the more he marvels at the idea that divinity is hiding its own divinity from itself. We're, you know, we're God, and everything we experience is God, and yet it seems to us mundane and ordinary and boring. And we do that to ourselves. We trick ourselves into thinking that things are not infinitely fascinating and infinitely meaningful and infinitely sacred. Everything, even the most mundane. And he says he laughs when he sees people out in the world living their, their day-to-days because they're pretending that they aren't God itself. He said avatars of Brahma, but that's what that means, they, that they aren't embodiments, incarnations of God on earth, and that the cells of their body aren't millions of gods. And here again, you see that fractal picture, right? I am an embodiment of God. And what I'm made of, all these cells in my body, Millions of other gods, right? Patterns within a pattern. I'm a god made up of gods over and over and over for eternity. And so you get more of this fractal imagery. Then he says, The organism and its world are a single integrated pattern in which there is neither subject nor object. It is realization of the reciprocity of will and world, self and not self, which evokes the strange and seemingly unholy conviction that I am God. In Western culture, this sensation is seen as the very signature of insanity. But in India, it is simply a matter of course that the deepest sinner of man, Atman, is the deepest sinner of the universe, Brahman. Why not? Surely a continuous view of the world is more whole more holy than one in which there is a yawning emptiness between the cause and its effects. Only Alan Watts can say it like that. Motherfucker, that's good. Surely a continuous view of the world is more whole and more holy than one in which there is a yawning emptiness between the cause and its effects, between God and its creation. Why should there be a a, a, a 
gulf between God and, and man. And doesn't it seem more complete and more sacred and more holy to, to realize that there isn't? There is no space between creator and creation. Man, that's good. And that's, that's the point. That is the point. When you realize that there is no difference between self and not self, between creator and creation, between subject and object, between any set of opposites, everything is, in fact, one. When you realize that, you realize that there is a continuous view of the world that, that has no separation. And he says, he says, listen, there's something I must tell. I've never, never seen it so clearly. Life is basically a gesture, but no thing is making it. It just happens freely of itself. It's a gesture which is its own end. There is the gesture. Time, space, and multiplicity are complications of it. We have lost touch with our original identity, which is the great self-moving gesture. All right, so I, I want to admit that that is one of the quotes that maybe is hard, hardest to understand. But I also want to admit that it is the most genuine expression of the peak mystical experience that I could probably bring to you because it goes beyond language. And you can see that very clearly when he says, first of all, when you have this type of experience, becoming one with the universe, unlocking all, all the mysteries become obvious to you, when that happens... The first thing you want to do is tell everyone. You want to share the secret with everyone you know and everyone you love. You know, it's like a burden hanging on you and you have to unload it, you know? If you knew something that important, that powerful, you know, that hidden, wouldn't you want to tell people? And that's what he says. Listen, there's something I must tell. I've never seen it so clearly and this is how it feels. It feels like... You know, all the obstacles to knowledge and insight fall away, and everything feels like an epiphany. And what is the epiphany he wants to let us know? What, is he, what does he want us to know so badly? Life is a gesture, he says, but nothing is making it. Now, I don't think he means nothing. I think he means no being is making it. It's a gesture in and of itself. He said the gesture is its own end. The gesture is the thing. So you might say the gesture is the being, but gesture, of course, is an action. And so you see the boundary falling down between the actor and the action, between creator and creation. Whatever God is, is an action. And that action is its own end. He says there's this gesture. Time, space, and multiplicity all flow from that. Right? We think of time and space and multiplicity to be fundamental to the world. And the, and the mystical insight is, no, everything is one. Things aren't many. Everything is one. There's no time and space because everything is one. There's not two moments. There's only one. So how can there be time? And God is all there is. There is no space. You can't move within God. Where can God go when there is nothing else? So there isn't any of these fundamental things that we attach our reality to. And yet they flow from the gesture. And then he says, the best part as far as I'm concerned, he says, we have lost touch with our original identity. 
And this is like something he's lamenting here because he's so passionate and inspired by this revelation of this gesture that the world is. And he says, we've lost touch with our original identity, which is the great self-moving gesture. Our identity that we've forgotten, that we've lost, is that we are God. He says, There has repeatedly come upon me the sense of my original identity, as one with the very fountain of the universe. I have seen, too, that the fountain is its own source and motive. There is no problem left, but who will believe it? Will I believe it when I return to normal consciousness? Right? So the fountain is the source and motivation of itself. It's the self-created. It's the unmoved mover, as Aristotle would say. It's a way of describing God, and he's identifying with that now in this mystical experience. And then he says something that I think is fascinating. He says, there is no problem left, but who will believe it? And I think what he means here is that we have all sorts of reasons to have anxiety and problems in our normal waking consciousness. But when you, when you have a mystical insight and you realize that, that all is one, it has so many implications, I can't even, I don't even know where to begin. But one of the implications is that death isn't real. Right? That consciousness and God are eternal things. I, I, you know, I would often refer to them as one thing. I don't want to be conf- overly confusing here, but they're eternal things. There is no end to them. And so there is no death. And so conquering death and and losing your fear of death is a very common consequence of this. And when he says there is no problem left, it's like, what is a bigger problem than looming death and, and doom? And that goes away. This is why they use psychedelics now and PTSD and therapy for people who are dying. Uh, and, and they come to terms with their own dying and they don't feel anxious about it. They're, they, they're allowed to live um, you know, a more meaningful t- time in their last days um, as a consequence. And there's all sorts of studies you can reference about this. There is no problem left, but who will believe it? Like, if you realize that what you are is God, what problem is left? And then he says, well, I believe it myself when I return to normal consciousness. And truer words have never been spoken. Coming back from a mystical experience is like waking from a dream. All of the great insights and meaning that you, that you experience in, during this mystical state of mind fade and it's hard, to, it's hard to even make sense of them or to write them down quickly enough. And, and some of those feelings linger. I don't want to say that that's not the case. But so much of what you intellectualize about it and what you can kind of hold on to gets slippery and fades just like a dream. And he wonders, will I even believe this when I return to normal consciousness? And it's another interesting paradox because you're inspired to share this insight with people. And then you then you can't even really remember or, or figure out the words to tell them. And so you, you end up in this paradox within yourself, you know, where language fails you. All right, so that concludes the trip accounts that I wanted to talk about. 
And that brings us to the last section, which uh, really was a synthesis on his end after we've read his trip accounts. What kind of religious implications um, does this have? And how could you summarize um, what you take away from a mystical experience? So this is this section I'm going to call psychedelics and religious experience. It begins like this. Alan says, For more than 30 years, I have been studying those peculiar states of consciousness in which the individual discovers himself to be one continuous process with God, the universe, with the ground of being. That specific mode of consciousness which, to those who have known it, is as real and overwhelming as falling in love. I don't, I don't even think that is a strong enough statement, by the way. It is as real and overwhelming as falling in love, but it is vastly more real. It, it has this feeling of being realer than real, as being hyper-real. And I think overwhelming is not a big enough word. Not even close. But it's hard to argue with something that fits that description. You have a feeling that is realer than real, and more overwhelming than falling in love by a thousand times. That is, that is an experience that is impossible to argue with. This is at the root of a lot of the disagreements that Kyle and I have because he sees me making statements very confidently about things that I have no business being as confident as I am about, as though I know with certainty something that I can't even articulate. And it allows me to say things that, you know, with certainty that nobody else and no rational person could say. But here Alan Watts is getting to the point. In the psychedelic experience, he, he says, people discover that they are one continuous process with God, the universe, the ground of being. He says... The first characteristic is a slowing down of time, a concentration in the present. The truth is that people who live for the future are, as we say of the insane, not quite all there or here. He says foresight is brought at, excuse me, bought at the price of anxiety, and when overused, it destroys all its own advantages. Okay, so mystical experience um, comes with a concentration in the present. And this is something people refer to as like an eternal moment, or they'll or they'll talk about time being an illusion, which is something that I talk I talked about with my own mystical experience, is that there is only now. And the mystical experience helps you to live in the now. Because otherwise we're thinking about what we have to do tomorrow and what our plan is for our career and all the all you know, all the problems that we have to face, and now we have to plan for them and all of that. And we live outside of the now all the time. And he said, if you do that too much, you're no different than someone who's insane. You're not quite all there, are you? Because you're, you're living in the future. And he said, this is something that psychedelic mystical experience helps you to understand. There is only now. He says, the second characteristic, I will call awareness of polarity. He says, the vivid realization that opposites are interdependent. One sees that things which are explicitly different are implicitly one. Self and other, subject and object, figure and background, 
pulse, and interval, each is definable only in terms of the other, like buying and selling, for there is no sale without a purchase. As this awareness becomes increasingly intense, you feel that you yourself are polarized with the external universe in such a way that you imply each other. You feel that you are something being done by the universe, yet the universe is equally something being done by you. He says, which is true, at least in the neurological sense, that our brains translate the sun into light and air vibrations into sound. So that's just a practical proof point that you can't brush off the idea that the universe is something being done by you because you play a role in how the, how the universe is represented. It has to be filtered through, you bi- through your biology and through your consciousness to be what it is. So you are a critical piece in the universe being what it is. Amazing. He says, the third characteristic is the awareness of relativity. I see that I am a link in an infinite hierarchy of processes and beings, ranging from molecules through bacteria and insects to human beings, and maybe to angels and gods. A hierarchy in which every level is in effect the same situation. I want to point out here, again, the fractal motif. I am a link in an infinite hierarchy ranging from molecules to human beings and maybe even to angels and gods. There may be levels of being even above our own to which we are connected. And he said every level is in effect the same situation. So what picture is that painting? What, what the molecules are are exactly like what the bacteria are, what the insects are, what I am, what the angels are, what gods are. So, you know, this comes up in, in uh, all sorts of ways. This fractal idea, this, this notion of as above, so below, uh, that we get from Hermes Trismegistus. Uh, everything is the same at different levels. God is all in all, you know. So every level of this hierarchy is essentially God complete in and of itself. Patterns within pattern, within a pattern, within a pattern forever. Then he says, from this, the realization that we are all, in fact, one being doing the same thing in as many different ways as possible. All beings are just as much I as myself. Yet the I feeling must always be a sensation relative to the other, to something beyond its control and experience. The intellectual jump which mystical experience make here is in enabling you to see that All these myriad eye-centers are yourself. What the Hindus call Paramatman, the self of all selves. And then he gives us his poetry again. He says, As the retina enables us to see countless pulses of energy as a single light, so the mystical experience shows us innumerable individuals as a single self. Buddy. I want to hone in on one thing, which is in the beginning when he says, from this, the realization that we are all, in fact, one being doing the same thing in as many different ways as possible. What is the thing that we're doing? What is the thing that we're all doing? 
So you, it's hard. It's hard to answer that question because we're all doing different things for different reasons. And at every level, it's like, you know, what are my cells doing? You know, they're they're taking energy from the food, or they're distributing it to, you know, they're, they're, my, my organs and my cells and all these things, are they're doing their own thing. They're all doing different things and functioning, you know, in different ways. And everyone has their own, um, you know, obligations and their own priorities. And so how do you, how do you say that every, everything is one and we're all doing the same thing? How is that possible? So it's like, if you think about your senses, let's say, the way you touch, you smell, you hear, all of that is really a interpretation of vibration. I mean, if you don't believe me, look it up, but it is. Um, the, the, the pattern of vibration and the, and the light waves that come into your eye, the pattern of vibration of the, uh, of the uh, forces in, in the atoms that, uh, that, that um, they don't really interact but push against one another when I touch the table, when I, you know, when I feel what I call tactile sensation, the way something feels, soft, silky, bumpy, there's nothing really there. It's all interpretation of energy, of interpretation of vibrations. All sensation is like that. And I think about this idea of like, I talked about this once before, but it's like the development of the eye. So you can think about historically we had at some point some organism, some single cell organism probably deep, deep, deep into our ancient past who developed this ability to detect the difference between light and dark. It was a photosensitive cell. That's what they call that. And then through mutations, uh, you know, over time, that becomes more sophisticated. And suddenly it turns into something more like an eye. And then it becomes an eye. And then it becomes, a, you know, a, a better eye. It becomes adapted in all different environments and underwater. And, and you know, all, these, all these, different, these different things happen that allow vision to have all of these different capabilities. And whether we go back to that single cell, that photosensitive sensitive cell that can only tell light from dark, or we fast forward to my eye that can see color and distance and shape and perspective and all kinds of things, that, that, that detection that's happening, whether it's sophisticated or simple, is the same thing. It's a perception of something. So what we're doing is perceiving what we're doing is acting and perceiving. And every single act of perceiving, and every single interaction, if we imagine that everything is one, like the mystics want us to, and that oneness is God, then every single action, every single experience, is God experiencing God. It's self-experience. That's what all of reality is. God's self-experience. So when Alan says, we are all in fact one being doing the same thing in as many different ways as possible, what that one thing is, is experiencing ourself. Experience, that's what we're doing. And if we're all God, that's what we're experiencing. God experiencing itself. And that is it, that is the point, that is everything in all of reality. And then he says, every eye, every subject, everybody who's doing that is the same eye, the same subject. He says, those eye centers are yourself, what the Hindus call the self of all selves. Whew. All right, lastly, he says, the fourth, fourth characteristic is awareness of eternal energy. 
He says, one sees quite clearly that all existence is a single energy and that this energy is one's own being. Of course there is death as well as life because energy is a pulsation. The experience of existing must go on and off. There is simply nothing to worry about because you yourself are the eternal energy of the universe playing hide and seek, playing on and off with itself. He says, you are the Godhead, for God is all that there is. The words I and self should properly mean what the whole universe is doing at this particular here and now, called John Doe. Motherfucker, that's good. Well done, Alan Watts, well done. That brings me to my conclusion. What does it mean when the psychonaut awakes from his vision and declares with passionate certainty that all is one? What does it mean when I say that I am God, that everyone and everything is one in God? Does it mean that I personally created the cosmos? Does it mean that I, in my present form, am eternal, omniscient, omnipotent? Does it imply a solipsism where I am the master of reality and everything else is some sort of illusion of my own making? Or is it possible that it means something else, something far deeper and far more difficult to express in words? What is certain is that with all the diversity of imagery, feeling, and meaning that come with mystical experience, there is one primary thread running through them all, a sense of shared identity with the creator of experience, the very creator of heaven and earth. The mystic Swedenborg expressed the experience of this divine unity, stating, quote, For the created universe is a connected work, as God is one. And the great philosopher of religion, William James, who put it this way, quote, It is as if the opposites of the world were melted into unity. The unity achieved in these experiences is always understood to be God. Dissolving one's ego and melting into unity is the experience of not becoming God exactly, but remembering that you always have been. The psychiatrist R.M. Buck, who, like William James, experimented early with nitrous oxide, put it this way, quote, With these come a consciousness of eternal life, not a conviction that he shall have this, but the consciousness that he has it already. The same ego-dissolving unity is expressed by the medieval Sufi Gulshan Raz when he said, quote, There is no being save only one. Every being who is separated from himself hears outside of him this echo, I am God. Buddy. It is also critical to note that the recognition of being one with God, of sharing identity with it, is inseparably connected to experience, to consciousness, and to the force of life. It is as though all life is the life of God, all thoughts the thoughts of God. 
all experience the experience of God. Every set of eyes conceal God, who is the seer behind each and every one. Another mystic makes this clear when J.A. Simon says, quote, Each is all in God. There is no higher, no deeper, no other than the life in which we are founded. The one remains, the many change and pass, and each and every one of us is the one that remains. Man, man, that's good. Now, returning to Watts, we see the same emphasis on shared essence and identity, don't we? Watts said, quote, This is bound up with a recognition of my own most ancient identity, as if consciousness had been present at the very beginning of things. It is realization of the reciprocity of self and not-self, which evokes the conviction that I am God. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, he adds a clarifying detail that will help us put this in perspective. He describes, quote, those peculiar states of consciousness in which the individual discovers himself to be one continuous process with God. Now that last part bears repeating, one continuous process with God. Why is that important? What difference does it make to be one with God versus one continuous process with God? Because this distinction answers each one of our opening questions. You see, it is not that I created the cosmos exactly, but the eternal I behind each one of us. All that I am is God. And so, I am God is a perfectly reasonable statement. But God, you see, is far more than what I am alone. It extends infinitely beyond my perspective to include all subjects and all of being. I cannot say that my actions include the creation ex nihilo, and yet the divine subject behind my actions most certainly can. So God is a process of which I am a piece, which makes me at once God and not God. And so we return to the mystic paradox, to the opposites in union, But the beauty and necessity of paradox is again recognized by Watts, who stands in awe of it. He said that being a continuous process with God is, quote, more whole, more holy than one in which there is a yawning emptiness between the cause and its effects, between God and its creation. See, there is no real separation between God and reality. And in this way, we are one. As Watts reminds us, quote, You are the Godhead, for God is all there is. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.